Oh, man, we're late. Yeah, well, let's see if we can find a place to sit. Yeah, guys, did you see the look the usher gave me? Yeah. I hate it when we get here late. Man, I should have laid all this out before I went to bed last night. I guess so. Hey, hey, what is all that stuff? What, this? Yeah. Study aids. Study aids? Yeah, I believe in getting as much information as possible, you know, so I can make a... Make informed decisions, you know, about, about who God is and, and where I fit in the master plan of the universe, how we got here, that sort of thing, you know? Huh. Well, what do you have there exactly? Oh, um, well, uh, let's see, I got, I got uh, seven sacred paths of human transformation, uh, Buddhist perspective on wholeness, the shamans of ancient Mexico, the progressive awakening of Zen. Uh, I've got the entire 31-week curriculum and sermon notes for the last six years, Greek-English interlinear Bible, the Quest Study Bible, the Life Application Bible, the Living Insights Study Bible, the Revised English Bible, and the first five volumes of the, the, the Journey to Spiritual Maturity. Ah. Yeah. What do you got? Holy Bible. NIV. NIV? Yeah. Oh, I gotta make a note to get one of those. That's, that's cool. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, my beliefs are derived from a number of different sources. You know, I, I'm, I'm influenced by Hinduism and Buddhism, and uh, well, I have a basic underlying Christian belief, but but I need a, a belief that empowers me. And then, you know, organized religion is disempowering. It's it's basically bogus. So I, I study, and I, I come here and other places, and then I combine those, those various practices and beliefs. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you, uh, you know a lot about God, I guess, huh? Oh, yeah, you're kidding. I, uh, I got enough info to write his bio. <laughs> well, that's, that's mighty impressive. <laughs> bet it is. You know, knowledge is what it's all about. I mean, you, you got to gather up all the information and make an informed decision. Uh-huh. You know, since, since you know so much about God, could I ask you a question? Sure, yeah, yeah, go ahead. What, what do you call him when you talk to him? Talk to him? Um, I'm sorry, I don't understand your question. I didn't think so. Tell you what, Jack, why don't you come with me? I'll uh, buy you a cup of coffee and share a little knowledge of my own with you. Okay, okay. There's more to knowledge than knowledge. We are discussing how we can have a ministry in all of the arenas of what we call majority life. It's not real life out there. Real life is the one that lasts forever. But it's a majority life. It's where we spend a majority of our time. It's where the majority of the world is. And so how can we really make a difference there, be salt and light in the world? And we've talked about our family and about how to minister at our work and how to minister our friends and how to minister our leisure time sports and leisure activities and entertainment. And now we're in education. And, and, and how can we make a difference, not only at our schools, but an educational difference in, in all of the world? And, and last week, the first thing we said is, you've got to know your stuff. We've got to be competent in knowledge. We have to know not only uh, the truths uh, of our faith, but the truths of our field. Whatever our chosen field is, we've got to be the best at it. We've got to know our stuff. But you can't stop there. 
because we don't live our lives for us. Paul knew his stuff, but he lived his life in such a way that he could craft his method of his message, not his message. The message always remained the same. But the method of the message, according to those whom he could help when he was with them. So today, we want to know, what responsibility do we have to our fellow seekers? Everywhere we are, there's going to be people who are trying to learn about God, who are trying to figure it out. So what responsibility do we have? How do we approach that? If you will turn to Acts chapter 17. This is Paul at Athens who is getting ready to proclaim the gospel. No, he's really proclaiming the gospel to three different types of seekers. Starting with verse 16, it says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding a city full of idols. Let me say to you, we have a culture full of idols. Not many little statues, not many big statues, but full of idols. Vernon's reference uh, to uh, a tough message and spiritual warfare, uh, I, I did not anticipate this going into this weekend. Saturday night came, great. Sunday morning, early came, great. Big response, we have an altar call at the end. But last service, you could see the battles going on. You could see the battles going on. Because what I'm about to say to you, straight out of Scripture, is about taking away our idols. And, to, and if we think that even believers don't have idols, we're wrong. Something that's simpler to believe in than the straight truth of the gospel. Something that's simpler to do than just to have a personal relationship with Almighty God. We have idols. So Paul sees a culture and a city full of idols, and this is what it says. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. First category of people, people that are almost there. I mean, they're just on the right track. You know people like this in your life. They're this far away from Christ. I mean, you can just go, mm, and they'd be there. And, and these were represented by the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue because they had available the prophecies. They had available the atmosphere to understand who Jesus the Messiah was. And so they're just almost there. And, and, and Paul's reasoning with them every day in the synagogue and, it says, in the marketplace, the Agora. By the way, in a, in a month or so, we're going to begin a couple of different ways to equip you to minister in the marketplace. Those of you men and women are out in the marketplace every day, um, and, and you're in business every day. And, and this is what Paul did, and this is what we want to make sure you have the equipment to do out there. But it says, every day with those who happen to be present, not a chosen, it was, it was just whoever came along. Remember, Jesus did ministry along the way. Paul's doing ministry along the way. Whoever God puts in his path, that is his ministry. Now also, this is the second category. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now the, word, the Greek word here for conversing, sunabalo, is literally to toss something back and forth. It's like a ball, it's like a ball tossing a ball back and forth, only tossing ideas back and forth. And so this is who he's talking to, kind of drawing a bead on who is who. 
Let me give you a little uh, textual uh, information here. The Epicureans were the followers of Epicurus, hence the name, uh, who lived about the 3rd century B.C. And Epicurus uh, had a philosophy that said basically the objective of life was to increase one's pleasure and to diminish one's pain. Now, on the surface of it, that doesn't sound like rocket science. Uh, but, and, and he wasn't crude about it. It, it wasn't hedon, totally hedonistic. Uh, he said there is a place, as a matter of fact, for morality. Because ultimately, morality um, um, orders society and therefore uh, um, um, evokes our safety and therefore increases our pleasure. So there is a place for morality, but I want you to see the point of morality. The morality isn't the morality itself. It's how much pleasure ultimately can we get out of our morality. Now, there's the theology here of the Epicureans about the gods. They didn't believe in one god. They believed in many gods. And the theology was this, and this is the reason I point this out to you. See if this resembles any Christian theology that you've heard recently. This was their opinion about the gods. Number one, the gods really have no wrath. They're just really nice and they would never do anything to ultimately cause pain. There's no wrath being stored up here, no punishment being stored up here, because that would hurt the, the people, and people are fairly nice, and so gods would never uh, store up any wrath. Number two, um, there is a sense in which sin is sin, and pff, it's not a big deal. The, the, the gods didn't get all upset when, when, when people... Uh, sinned against one another or sinned by themselves or, or whatever. It's just kind of, a, you know, well, boy, you know, winking up. Boys will be boys. You know, Pfft, not a big deal. Number three, the gods never directly intervene in life. It's kind of a show. They kind of, you know, they kind of left it to us. We do whatever we want. They're kind of watching, whatever. Now, I say this to you because I know a lot of Christians who think they're Christians who are really Epicurean. They can't imagine God storing up wrath as punishment for sin. They can't imagine God taking sin seriously. They can't imagine God uh, intervening uh, in any way in life. If they get smacked upside the head, they think it's circumstance instead of God trying to get their attention. They just can't imagine that kind of intervention. On the other end of the spectrum, there were these people who were trying to, you know, kind of get this warm, fuzzy God kind of going thing. And there, on the other end, there was the Stoics, the, the followers of Zeno who lived uh, approximately the same, at the same time as Epicurus. And, and uh, um, he, he did most of his preaching on the porch or the Stoa. That's where we get the word, Stoics. Um, and, and, the, and the Stoics were just on the opposite end of the spectrum emotionally and theologically. The Stoics said, look, there's an overall purpose. You line up with your purpose. And never mind how you feel for crying out loud. And, 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 and uh, uh, you, you, you don't feel grief. You don't feel joy. You don't feel feelings just getting away. You just do your stuff. Now, I suspect that there are a lot of very legalistic churches that are exactly like this. Don't tell me your problem. Do your stuff. Or we're going to cut you off at the knees. Because you're, you're here to do your stuff. Whereas down here, there are Christians... And there are Christians, there are a lot of these Christians that go to a large church, and they go to a large church for this purpose. I never want to be confronted with anything uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, I can go in, and it, it increases my knowledge, and it increases my joy to be in church. So I'll just go in, and I'll receive that. 
and I'll say, thank you, maybe. Maybe I'll contribute if I got it. But the, one of the reasons I like this church, they never mention money. And so as long as they don't mention money, I'll keep coming. There's a veiled threat there, by the way. I mean, there, there really is. You guys ever start talking about money, I'm out of here. Now, I want, I want you to know, number one, we will talk about money. And number two, if you're out of here, it's not because you became a Christian, it's because you became a consumer and you're looking for someplace else to consume instead of to give. Number two, people come in here and they say, you know what, I like it that nobody knows what I'm doing. I mean, I can live with somebody and without the benefit of marriage. Nobody's probably going to say anything to me about it because boys will be boys. You know, in a big, in a big church, pfft, doesn't matter. Not a big deal. They hardly ever mention it in here. So it must mean it's okay. It's not okay. And I'll tell you why. It's not, it's not because you're a bad person, but because we have a holy God who says it's not okay. And so therefore, we are building, and as long as they don't start talking about this sin stuff and get morality above my comfort level and ultimately what gives me my pleasure, then I'll stay. Now, we have, I suspect, a good portion of Christianity tied up with that kind of tailor-made theology. By the same token, I want to tell you, we got a group of people down here say, kick them out. Get, get, them, get them out of here. Purity of the church, kick them out right now. Don't tell me about, don't tell me about, well, I don't think I have enough money. So what? Well, I'm lonely. So what? Well, I've been mistreated as a child. I didn't understand. So what? Get them out of here. You know, we've got this kind of too. And that kind of tailor-made theology doesn't really fit Christ, does it? And Christ being with sinners? Nah. So Paul was working with all of these people. And then there was another group who didn't fit any of these. It didn't fit the people who had kind of the right theology. They just weren't quite there yet. Or those who had taken what theology they had and tailor-made it to their own emotional disposition and their own desire of who they wish God was. Then there was a third one. As these ideas were flying around, they called Paul a babbler and they said, we know where to take you. We know a bunch of people who love to hear new philosophical ideas about religion. And so these are the intellectual seekers of the day. It says, and they took and brought him to the Areopagus. This, by the way, in Athens, is the, traditionally the site of the Mount of Ares, the god of war. By this time, and, and, and traditionally it's Mars Hill. We were just there last year, um, climbed the Mars Hill. They still have the, 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 the steps in the rock itself. They have the benches where the judges sat. And by this time, it is a, it is a judgment seat for the kind of the Supreme Court of Philosophical Ideas. And they love just to talk and talk and talk about the, the intellectual quest of it all. And so, he says, may, uh, uh, they brought them to the Areopagus, uh, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Now, this isn't bad. This is good to them. And we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, it says in parentheses, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. 
So the big deal to them is the more information I can get, the more the, the smarter I can feel, but yet you read down a little bit and they still don't know who God is. Now, here's the key to all of this. Paul saw these people and he saw that every one of those approaches to religion was getting them nowhere. I mean, the thing about this is, when we estimate our own progress in religion, we feel like we're really making a lot of progress. We feel like we're getting up there. It's kind of like, uh, I heard a story, uh, uh, no, I read it, I read it just this week, and it's in Reader's Digest, in this new Reader's Digest here. It's about a guy who is in his 40s and still on uh, this, uh, I think it's church softball team, but they were getting him all kinds of uh, 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 trouble because he was kind of losing his agility, you know. 40, your body starts uh, falling, falling apart. 50, it really starts going. But uh, uh, so they're, giving, they're kidding him all the time, and he's taking ribbon all the time. And, and so he's out there. He's playing shortstop in this one game, and this guy hits a streamer. I mean, just coming right up over his head. And this guy bends down and and launches as high as he can, stretches with everything he's got, and that ball just just nips the tip of his mitt and bounces into left field for a base hit. Just and so and so after the inning was over, the left fielder comes running in and the shortstop looks back at him and the left fielder said, This far, this far. And the shortstop says, I know I almost had it. He said, no, I'm talking about how far you got off the ground. This <laughs> So Paul's looking at all these approaches to religion. He's saying, this far, you know, you think you're really up there. You're that far off the ground. That's about how far man's efforts can get anybody toward God. No matter how smart it feels or how spiritual it feels, that is the, 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 main, the main understanding of our ineffectiveness, our impotence when it comes to devising a path to God. And Paul knew that. But watch this. Paul did not disrespect them for their efforts. Paul looked at them and he gave them a compliment. He says... In verse 22, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. In other words, you guys are so religious, you're so seeking after who God is, that you'll worship somebody you don't even know who it is. That's how religious you are. Now, I want you to hear the tone of this. Paul was there mixing with all of them because he loved them and because he respected their quest and because he wanted to know enough about them in order to build a peer relationship with them, in order to have an avenue to tell them what he knew. It is our job to mix. It is our job to go out and to hear the ideas that we hear every day. I know it looks like all the spiritual leaders of this universe are preachers. Uh, I mean, it does in our culture. I love to hear TV preachers. I love to hear T.D. Jakes. Man, the man can preach. I love to hear that. There are several, there are several preachers on TV I just love to hear. But I, let me tell you, 
They will never make a difference in that world out there. Nobody's going to listen to a TV preacher. It, it, you don't, TV preachers don't mix. Local church preachers, I've been here for 13 years. I'm getting to the place where I just don't, I don't, I don't mix well anymore. I'll, I'll be in a conversation with somebody and it'll be going along and somebody will just inevitably come up in the restaurant or in the store, wherever we are. This is my minister. And you can just see the expression on the person's face who I've been talking to. I mean, they immediately do, oh my gosh, a minister. And they just, they just, just start doing the scan. What did I say? Did I cuss? Did I, you know, you just see it. You can just see it. You, you're just tagged, and, and you're, and, and it's, and Vernon, you're the same way, and I know uh, the rest of the, you know, wherever we go now, we're just the preacher who walked in the room, and so we're not, we're kind of, we're not going to mix well, because it kind of makes people uncomfortable. We were, we were at a, a, uh, um, um, some, the Mitchells uh, invited us out for a water day, and it just happened providentially that Joel and Isaac and Josh's schedule and, and Becky and my schedule all cleared up and we could actually go to this thing. We can so seldom do this. And it's a few days before we take Joel to college. And so, and so this was cool. And we were all looking forward to this and, and, and went over and just having a ball. They're sharing their water toys with us, you know. And, and a wonderful family, great kids. And, um, and there came a point in the afternoon when, when uh, uh, the 300 men were out uh, on the tubes and they were just flopping all over behind a, behind a speedboat. And, and there were some of us uh, back on the dock, and we were just kind of chilling out. And one of, the, one of the people back there was this uh, beautiful, wonderful little uh, 10-year-old girl, a little gregarious girl. And she looks at her mom. She says, Mom, can I take the wave? There's this huge wave runner right there. She says, can I take the wave runner out and just chase the boat around? And, and, and her mom says, Honey, you know you can't take that, that wave runner out by yourself. And she, and the little girl looked all, all, you know, disappointed. And I said, well, I'll go out with you. And she looks at me and she goes, uh, really? <laughs> I said, sure. I said, you can even drive. Really? Yeah. So I'm, we're going down to the wave runner and she's, she's going, you know, you could just feel, no, my, my preacher's fault. She's saying, she's, I'm a really safe driver. I'm a really safe driver. I'm a really safe driver. <laughs> So she crawls on this wave runner, and I crawl on right behind her. And I think, this is going to be neat, because she's just going to, we're going to put her around the lake, and it's just going to be kind of neat. <laughs> she just took off with that thing. I don't know whether she thought she could get away from me or what. I'm right behind, and I'm just going like this, holding on like crazy. She's going to go, she's going to and, and we hit, we hit a, a, a wave, and the thing went up, and her head went back, and my head went forward. Crack, you know? And it, did, it just stung just a, a, a little bit, and I, but I was rubbing back of her head. And I said, oh, honey. And it was hand. I said, honey, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. She said, I didn't even feel that. She said, she said you want to do a 360? <laughs> and I said, I mean, she's really revved up by this time. And I said, what? Because I, I couldn't hear the, I, you know, the, the engine was revving. She turns around, she says, you're bleeding! <laughs> and there's blood. Now, let me stop my story right here just to make my point. <laughs> there's more to it, but I, I would, I would th I'm not paranoid or anything, but I would say that probably at, at any age, it's probably at best a mixed blessing to have a pastor on the back of your wave runner. I just, just a guess, just a guess. 
But when you're 10 years old and you've just made your preacher bleed, you're not having a good day. I mean, why? Because we don't mix well. I mean, we're just not right. I mean, we're just not, you just hate to make your preacher bleed. I mean, it's just not, you just don't want. But there are, God, for every one of us that doesn't mix well, there are thousands who have, who have colleagues and we're, we're not, I hear people, we're not, or you're, you're not paid Christians. You're, you're, you're that way because you really want to be. And, <laughs> and the point is, you're in conversations every day that will never get in. And you're in conversations with people we'll never meet. And so your job is to, is to listen to them, start swapping ideas so that, so that, you can establish that conversation that Paul had established. But watch this. You only do that so that you can contextualize the method of the message, but you don't change the message. Watch this. This is the most important point. We all, everyone, have a tendency to want to craft God in our own image. We want to do theology that will fit our particular likes, our particular needs. Now, here's the problem. There is one God who is the truth, and He is what He is, not dependent on our opinion. And that's what Paul was saying to them that day. I want you to see the turn this conversation made. He said, what therefore you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. And then, without any reasoning, we're going to do reasoning next week. Pastor Orlando is going to show you how we, we do have common intellectual grounds. But he disregarded that. He just proclaimed the plain gospel. And he has basically said, take this or leave it. I want to tell you this about God. I want to tell you something. You think that you have to work your way to God when God has already worked His way to you. You're seeking after God. He's not far from any one of us. You think you're making an atmosphere for God. God's made an atmosphere for you. You think that, that you can, can come to understand God in such a way that that He will fit into your intellect. You think that God is nebulous or foggy enough that one construct is as good as another. I'm telling you, that God was in one man who died and was resurrected. And there's your truth. Now listen to me. We have, that's coming down on purpose, we have one of the greatest challenges to our faith of all time when it comes to doing theology according to our opinion. Faith is that which was meant to shield us from our own selfishness, from our own egotism. Faith was that which was meant to call us beyond ourselves. Faith was that 
which was meant to evoke us to live for the sake of others and not for the sake of ourselves. Now, if we get inside of a faith and begin crafting that thing to suit our own ego, what cure do we have? We have just gone to the very thing that was to prevent us from being ego-centered in the world, and we have made it ego-centered. Let me give you a medical metaphor. One of the most insidious things, I've I, I read this, this is in the, the August edition of Discover Magazine, 1998. Uh, there is an a, a, a infectious disease specialist, Wayne uh, uh, Massacar, I think is his name, uh, works out of the uh, uh, Dana-Kerber uh, Cancer Institute of Boston. And he's done studies on the um, HIV virus. And what makes the, put this slide up, what makes the HIV virus so insidious is that it lives inside the very cell that is supposed to attack it. It, this is a T cell, and a T cell is supposed to be our body's line of defense against those objects that could harm it. But, but the insidiousness and the harmfulness is that a, uh, an HIV uh, virus will, first of all, it has a genetic structure that, that, I'm trying to shorten this, it has a genetic structure that encodes, one of its genes encodes a protein called TAT that invades a cell, and then it attaches itself to the RNA structure. And the HIV will produce infectious RNA, and the RNA disgorges itself. Watch this. Infected RNA disgorges itself from the very vehicle that was supposed to kill it. And so that which was supposed to protect us becomes that which infects us. Now, the genetic treatment that is being uh, um, uh, worked on right now comes when there is an intrabody, another piece of the work, the makeup of the blood that affixes itself to the bonding surface of this so that it not only can't bond that which is in, that which is, which is those that are already in the cells, but it, it doesn't fit inside the cells anymore. It has to pass by or pass over uh, the harmful effects that it could have had, the invasion that it could have had. Okay, take this slide down and let me, let me tell you what the analogy here is. Sin is basically being centered on yourself. Sin is basically trying to think of excuses why you could get what you get even though it may cost others. Sin is the rationalization that says God really doesn't care about this. Sin is the rationalization that says, what I do in my private life is my business. Let me tell you something. You may have a legal right to privacy, we all do, but when it comes to sin, none of us have a moral right to privacy because sin harms people. 
And so therefore, what has happened, what God has done, and this is the absolute most marvelous thing, this is nothing we can cure ourselves. This is something that can only be cured in the blood. This is something that can only be cured when the God who is completely other becomes the very sickness that we are, the very thing that is harming us and attaches himself to that thing. You see, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that he who knew no sin became sin. And what happened is that God came down and through the sacrifice of His own blood attached Himself to our sin so that our sin might not have power anymore and that the harm might literally pass by us. It was God Himself who suffered the harm. God Himself who suffered the sickness. God Himself who suffered the pain. And therefore... When it comes to us making up God, even when it comes to us earning our salvation, how much of this have we earned? How much of this have we fought for? How much of this have we had to suffer? None of it. It was God's idea. And Paul stands there in front of these Athenians and he says, you know what? You think you're creating God. And you think by that you're creating your own salvation. You not only can't create God, you can't create your own salvation. Jesus Christ died for you. He shed His blood for you. And there's nothing, nothing you can do to earn that. All you can do is attach your sin to Christ's cure. The Bible says this. We're saved by grace. God's favor by faith. That through faith. Faith is the attachment of His sacrifice to our sickness that makes our sickness impotent to harm us. And that not of works, lest any man should boast. Now I want to challenge you this morning. And this is my challenge. There's some of you who because you think you want a God who you don't have to answer to. You think you want a God who builds you up, but you don't have to sacrifice in gratitude to somehow, somehow love Him and serve Him. You've kind of fogged around with this thing. But Paul presented the message just as I'm going to present it to you this morning. And we'll let the chips fall where they may. Paul said this to them. This is the God. This is the only God. And it doesn't matter what our opinion is. And it doesn't matter what our thinking process is. What matters is whether or not we're going to accept Him as the only God. Whether we're going to say, you're the one. And whether or not we're not only going to say that from our perspective, but whether or not we're going to say that when somebody comes alongside of us and says, you know, in my opinion, mm -mm, there is a truth and it's yours to have or reject. There were three responses that day. Let me ask the worship team to come forward.
And I'm, I'm, I'm going to challenge. This is, this is not going to be comfortable. But I've just got done preaching a sermon on doing things that take you beyond what is comfortable for yourself, beyond yourself, beyond ourselves. And so therefore, to not have an altar call, to not have a chance to physically come up and kneel someplace on this floor and say, you're the one. You're the one. And I'm not, even gonna, I'm not only going to live it, I'm going I'm to tell it. Whenever I can, I'm going to tell it. For some of you, this may be your first time ever to tell Jesus Christ, He's the one for you, and you recognize that. But I want to give you a chance this morning with your bodies. Stand up for a second. There were three responses to Paul's message. It says in verse 32 that some began to sneer. I'm fully aware that there are those people here this morning who said, Hunter, I, I hear all this, but you're still a preacher. You've still got your own opinion, and I just can't buy it. There's only one way. So I ain't buying it. I understand. I'll continue to hope that someday God reveals himself to you so fully and so personally you can finally have the security of an eternal relationship. It said, some said, we want to hear you again concerning this. There are some here this morning that say, gosh, I'm this close. I'm this close. I just can't, I just, I just need, it's okay. Come back. You come back as many times as you need. Hopefully, you've got time left. But there are some of you, there are many of you this morning who will, it says, some joined him and believed. And hopefully, there are many of you this morning that say, I want to I walk with my feet and I want to use my knees to say with my body that I fully recognize Jesus is the only one. And I will live my life according to him and not according to who I wish he was or according to what I wish he'd say, but according to the truth. And I'll tell people every chance I get who the truth really is. If that is your vow and that is your wish. I want you to come and just kneel for a moment with me this morning and just repeat these words to yourself. You're the one. You're the one, Christ. And then get up and walk back to your seat having made that commitment with your life.